I've always been very interested in psychology. It honestly wasn't like a backup to art. I always loved art and to decide to study psychology didn't feel like I was giving up on something else. It was like, okay, I could I could do this too. And I am Anson Mount. And Anson, you sound as though you're in a different place. Where are you? <laughs> I am. I'm in a very different place. I'm at my new house in Connecticut, still moving in, and uh, just picked up my mom at the airport this morning, because uh, she's in for my wife's graduation from art school. Nice. And we just had a fantastic dinner. Uh, we picked some, what we thought were uh, fiddlehead fern caps to to roast uh, on the oven as a dessert. And then we very, very deftly figured out that they were not the edible version. So we barely escaped food poisoning. Oh, I was going to say that you accidentally found the only psychedelic uh, fern, fiddlehead fern <laughs> caps in the world. And now well, you, 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 your mom and Dara are having a really colorful time. Well, leave it to my mom. She would find that. <laughs> Wait a minute. We said you deftly figured it out. How did you? How did you deftly figure out these were not the fiddle headphones you were looking for? Oh, Google. Oh, deft. I get it. This is part two of our show about Melissa McCracken. And if you haven't heard part one, go back and listen to it, or at the very least, go out and check Melissa's work at melissasmccracken.com. I was so pleased with the response we got from the last episode. So many people discovered her art and went and looked at it and loved it. And we got a great response from our creative synesthesia challenge. A lot of people submitted paintings and they were really, really, really yeah. cool. And first of all, I just yeah. love the fact that so many people sort of jumped on it and sent us stuff that was really, really, really yeah, nice. Yeah, really. I, 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 I was pleased with the response. Um, some people sent us the stuff on Twitter and so thank you to them. Uh, and some people sent us some responses on Facebook uh, and in particular, there's one I really liked um, from a, a Facebook page called Bad Lungs Art. I don't know the actual person's name who runs that page, but if you get a chance, go check out Bad Lungs Art. This person is very, very talented and submitted a beautiful response to Cold by The Cure. It, it's, uh, it's a black and purple and blue watercolor where certain sort of apostrophe spaces are left without water. And I just love the shape and the form. It's not just a beautiful piece of art. It's beautifully designed. And I, I really encourage people to go to our Facebook page, The Well Podcast on Facebook, and check it out. What I got from all the Creative Challenge contributions was that synesthesia, while itself may be very rare, it's not entirely unrelatable. Everyone seems to kind of get it on some level. So we're going to try to get to the bottom of this phenomenon in this episode. And a quick warning up front. While this episode does not contain any strong language, it does contain a lot of BS for the highly speculative science that I get into. 
I love it. Melissa had always been a painter, but she assumed, as many artists do, that it was just a dream job. So she did the responsible thing and majored in something you wouldn't be surprised to find was of interest to someone with synesthesia, psychology. I like to go down different paths of psychology and neuroscience, so it's not just stuck with the one synesthesia thing. I think that would be boring, and I think that would kind of get away from the idea of learning about new perspectives if I only looked at what I go through. Do you ever feel like, I don't know, something between having like a superpower and being a lab rat, Mm -hmm. where everyone is like, Mm -hmm. see what what you do with this? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, people, I think the the thing that ties that together, though, is that people are excited about it. You know, I think people are excited to experience the world differently. And I'm just one of many, many, many examples of that, you know, of, of something that they're so familiar with, like music, that they get to, you know, visualize it in any way, you know, not even in a new way, but in a, in a way. And so if you have this certain orientation of a song that you've loved your entire life and then for someone to be like, this is what this looks like, it's, it's exciting. It's interesting. The fact people are interested in this stuff, I think, points to the idea that we all have this desire to see our senses reinterpreted and scrambled. This is the psychedelic drug experience. And it's why musicians spend so much money on light shows, because we want to see sight and sound converge because we feel very deeply that they belong together. And I believe they really do. And there are plenty of other famous synesthetes that seem to confirm our brains do associate sound and color on a pretty regular basis. For example, Duke Ellington, Billy Joel, Pharrell Williams, Franz Liszt, Vincent van Gogh, and now here's a weird one, Stevie Wonder. Think about that for a second. Jimi Hendrix also had synesthesia. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. To yeah. you know, to, to to a degree that it frustrated some people. I think everyone adapted to it. Can the bass can the bass be more orange, please? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, and you're the bass player, and you're like, I, Jimmy, I don't know what you're talking about. But if, <laughs> but if but if you've worked with him for a while, you do start to know what he means by that. And Eddie Kramer, the engineer did start to understand, you know, that when, when Jimmy would say, like, you know, it could be a little more purple there on the back end, you know, and <laughs> and Eddie Kramer would be like, I've, I have I know what he means. He, I think he's talking about reverb. <laughs> a bassier sort of reverb. Yeah, he, he might have been, you know, giving out directions that made complete sense. Just louder or softer means the same thing to him as, you know, lighter or darker or, or whatever it is. This ability to adapt points again to the idea that these sensorial relationships are both intuitive and foundational. We all have automatic stimulation between neural pathways that we've all normalized. And maybe we all have some form of synesthesia. I think it's a natural state. I mean, we're, we keep coming back to this um, notion that everyone has almost a memory Mm-hmm. of this experience of color and sound. It's something we sort of long for. Mm-hmm. So when we see uh, an, you know, a film or something that something like Fantasia mm-hmm. that externalizes it, it's sort of a wish fulfillment. It's like, oh, that's yeah. these, these things are once again in concert with one another, yeah. and that's beautiful. And I, that has to be referencing something deep down in our 
brains that I think we, as maybe at a very early age, disassociated. From what I understand about synesthesia, we all have that. Um, we all have that connection when we're born. That babies tend to have synesthesia, from what I've read, and then you lose that the older that you get. So babies, <laughs> babies all have synesthesia, and what it is is like a highly associative thing. So you're constantly making associations, and that's how babies are operating through the world is that they're making associations with everything that they interact with. So they're just constantly sandwiching things together. And I think that it's in, in more ways than what we can even conceive, you know, um, because yeah, it's like, okay, I've got these things pegged down now as music is experienced differently or, or any, um, I guess, generic form of synesthesia. It's like, we've, we've acknowledged those things, but I think the doors can open in so many ways that we haven't even considered yet and that there are hidden doors that we don't even know about you know it's like I met a girl that had um it was shape to voice synesthesia and so like her dad had a triangular voice and I just couldn't get I was like what what do you mean (laughs) and I I I understand that that's the experience a lot of people go through when I explain you know my colors but um, she also had taste to pitch, too. So she'd eat a banana, and it was like a high C or something like that. And so she would crave snacks based on their pitch. So she'd want something that was above a D-sharp or something like that, you know. And um, and I was like, I don't get it, you know. And, and it's just funny because then she would have the same questions about my experiences. And so, you know, it's always just this foreign thing from, from every angle, so it's it's fun to it's fun to you know interview other people on it too. I've thought about it with with even with dancing. Dancing isn't inherently connected with music if you really think about it. I've heard it's because movement is really close to our you know our receptors for music and tempo and things like that and so um that's why it's connected and that's why humans dance because those parts of their brains are really, you know, close by in proximity. Everything that we generally associate together, we just decide that that's, that's standard, you know. But, I mean, there could be a specific form of synesthesia that just is standard, mm-hmm. <laughs> that isn't actually standard, you know. But all links between perception and, and whatever feeling it engenders is always taken for granted. No one ever looks at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We don't step back from anything. I mean, it would be it'd be a hard world if we did. Yeah. If we were constantly evaluating all the time, you know, why we're doing this, and we wouldn't be able to cross the street, you know. Yeah. So why does this salt taste like salt? I mean, it's just like with anything. You you get used to your world and sure. you take it for granted. And yeah, you can't possibly you know, go through your that. day like wow, <laughs> like this my is crying is every morning so listening exceptional. to my alarm clock. Yeah, I love the. Uh, the part about dance being a mm-hmm. standardized, shared form of synesthesia. And I got to say, you know what? Um, it's not completely standardized because I don't think I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah that's, there you go. That's pretty weird. So you have to... no synesthesia at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I express everything in its lane and it stays there. Everything is just, yeah. is just what it is. And nothing, <laughs> nothing crosses over. Dance kind of mystifies me. Uh-huh, really. It does. But the people that are really sort of, you know, make their lives about it and have a really strong connection mm-hmm. where it's automatic, mm-hmm. where it's un- where they can't prevent this reaction in a mm-hmm. way, 
that makes sense. I think you're. I think you're right. I think that mm-hmm. that does sound like mm-hmm. standardized, shared form of synesthesia. Yeah. But like I said, you know, even the the color and sound one is something that everyone. It's tantalizingly just sort of on the other, right on the other side of the horizon. Yeah, we feel that it is. Yeah, but not in the everyday sense. Not not automatically. Mm-hmm. There's one primary foundational aspect of consciousness that started ringing in my ears throughout my conversation with Melissa. And it first came up when she was trying to imagine what it would be like to not have synesthesia. Listen and see if you can spot it too. You know, because I think that there is such a high association with visuals and music. We have artwork, we have um, music videos, we have you know, dances, just all of light shows, all that kind of stuff. And so I can't disassociate that in any regard. And so if someone's in a room listening to their headphones, it's so interesting to me to think about, okay, what's going on? Are you, are you visually associating anything or, um, is there a different association? Are you bringing it back to a memory of whenever you smelled your mom baking while you were listening to this song? You know, it, it, even my memories of music, are more so in color than the music itself, mm-hmm. which is frustrating at times because, you know, if I have something stuck in my head or I remember like, oh, I loved this song and it was purple and orange and I, that, that is a dead end completely for anyone else understanding what I'm going through. I would think that that would help with memory. It can help and it can also hinder. Um, I would say it does help because it, it gives an extra association. So that's an extra tie to what you're trying to recall. But in a way, like if I'm trying to remember someone's name, I'll remember that they have a blue name. And so I'll remember that it, so that means it could be an A, which, you know, someone could be like, oh, it's an A name. So they'll go through all their A's, but that could be an A or an F or, um, sometimes E will shift between like blues and greens and things like that. Do you hear it? This theme got very loud. And her answer to my question, where do you see this color? I mean, my synesthesia lies where my memories lie. So the best way that I can describe it is that if you're thinking of a memory, wherever that memory lies. Our sense of reality is based entirely on memory. Memory is both the train tracks and the cargo of the brain. It makes us who we are. There's no way I can overstate this. So I enlisted the help of a friend with far, far better credentials than myself. He's the one you feel all right. He's the one that's going to feel good. He's going to be your Frankenstein. He's- I'm Chance Algar. I'm a neurologist. This is my specialty. This is what I do. Deal with bizarre aspects of the brain, the spinal cord, the peripheral nerves. What's a, pr- a quick primer on the sort of the primacy, the the fundamental role that memory plays in the way uh, consciousness is formed? You know, we're born. It's just you know tabula rasa, and and we just slowly accumulate experience, and that's that's memory. For example. You are not seeing most of what you think you see. Most of what you think you see is a memory. The truth is the vast majority of the neurons are really in, it's something called the macula, which is the center of your retina. And it's basically what you're looking directly at, which is why you think you can see the door, whatever, off to the far left or the far right. You can because you looked at it earlier. 
But if you did not pay attention, you know, someone could come walking in that door. You actually might not even notice that if you're truly focused on whatever is directly in your field. Your brain is really processing only the stuff in the center. Everything in your periphery is a paint-by-number schematic filled in by your memory of prior experience with that place. And the objects in that room, say a set of keys sitting on a table, you store the visual, auditory, tactile memories separately. It is their association to each other that helps you remember what a set of keys looks like, what they do, and what they're called. And in some cases of damage by stroke or injury, the road pathway from the visual stimulus to the word may be out of service. And you can't get to the name from here. That example was actually kind of, you know, when we're testing just something basic like language uh, and, a, you know, someone's had an injury to their language center and their vision center or maybe even just to their vision center. Um, so they're, you know, they're able to look at something, but they can't connect like you know you hold up the set of keys they're looking at it and they're like i don't know what that is but if you shake it they hear that sound and they're like oh that's my car keys you know now they hear it now they know what it is um so there yeah there's different ways we perceive what things are so that's not super amazing it's just yeah of course that's there's other mechanisms and and we're using all of this in real time and it's all whatever works fastest whatever works best and whatever you're best at you're going to naturally lean that way our brains are constantly creating relationships between things. Say, you're looking out the window at an industrial plant when the smell of baking cookies wafts into the room, and bang! Your brain will at least briefly associate the two things, and maybe weeks later you smell cookies and think of an industrial plant, but you won't remember why. That association just happened automatically. I mean, you're, you're receiving that sensory, visual, smell taste, uh, physical sensation, information, all at the exact same time. So those original experiences are all, all of that information is going to be filed under like, uh, this is this, <laughs> you know? I think it's all just deeply embedded in an association that you have. Like, I loved Mariah Carey when I was little, mm-hmm. and I mean, I still enjoy some of her music, but... Um, <laughs> She, a lot of the stuff that I listened to was very like hot pink and purple and all this stuff that a five-year-old would love anyway. So that might've been an extra draw to it, but there might be, if I see a certain color like magenta, I might be like, oh, that, that looks similar to something that I experienced when listening to Mariah Carey, but it's never automatically. It's more just of an association. When I think of like Jimi Hendrix or something, those um, colors of his music are not quite as vivid as a video that we might watch today. The clarity of videos from Woodstock are granulated. And so with his music, I don't see any like super, super bright, you know, pinks or anything like that. It's all kind of a muted look. And I don't know if that's because we watched videos of you know, old recordings, and that made it softer. You know, I don't know what those associations are, but... So, Mariah Carey music has hot pink and other colors we associate with 1980s music video production. Jimi Hendrix colors reflect colors associated with 1960s-era color film stock, which always seems to have a drop of sepia in it. 
the colors are less contrasty and vibrant because this was before single-strip color film was perfected. These observations begin to coalesce into a fuzzy sort of hypothesis that I decided to test by playing for Melissa the theme music for The Well. That is more center-focused, and it's kind of like a tealish color. And it's teal as the, as the main bit of it all. Um, it's like as if the background was teal, and then that guitar on top of it is like a like a, a jewel tone purple not a deep deep purple but but rounded and it and it snakes it's very tight it's very linear like if I were to paint it I would paint it vertically rather than horizontally um, yeah so at this point I turned my phone toward Melissa and showed her the icon for this podcast the silhouetted man with the well suspending a red heart into a turquoise cenote beneath, and asked, like this? Yeah, not quite, I would say. And that maybe goes to the association of it, too, where it's like, I've seen that and didn't think about that, and that's just what I see because I associate. And what's interesting, too, now that I'm looking at it, is that the teal is at the bottom, too, Mm -hmm. which is part of how I envisioned that, that it's like the teal was... The entire background, so yeah, maybe that's just maybe and, we've decoded it. And, and vertical. <laughs> yeah, that's true too, yeah. And here it comes, my big hypothesis. Won't Dr. Algar be impressed? Synesthesia is a phenomena that is really all about memory and recall. And as you're recalling something, which is all your brain is just constantly recalling, constantly recalling, in order to construct uh, consciousness construct reality it has to constantly recall and I think in an synesthete along with that recall comes some unfiltered associations that may not be really pertinent to be able to construct yeah. the memory but they're coming yeah. along anyway yeah these aren't arbitrary colors they don't come out of nowhere this is something that you store that you've associated with listening yeah. to something and now it's that, and now you're stuck with it, and now it comes back automatically whenever you receive that yeah. stimulus again. I, I would absolutely agree. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it's as good as anyone's going to get. <laughs> you got to say more than that. <laughs> <laughs> and no one can argue with you and prove you wrong. Um, <laughs> supposed, you're supposed nobody, to. Nobody has any idea. I mean, no one has any idea. It'll be maybe in 100 years. Somebody will be like, God, that guy was wrong. You know. <laughs> Seriously. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I like it. Tells you to me, but you know, nobody knows. Somebody might argue with you, but they're just as they have just as much ground to stand on. You know? All right. Well, thanks for your input, uh, Doctor. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> awesome. So, again, do I get a prize now or anything for? Yeah, you do. Yeah. For, You're gonna Nobel, Nobel for sure. I'll, I'll send a nomination. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I look, the guy I look, who came up with the front of the bottom, he got a Nobel Prize. <laughs> we could definitely get this, man. <laughs> I look forward to going to receive my medal. <laughs> but but, you're, you know. but the reason no one looks into it, and which is interesting that nobody looks into it, is because it's not causing a problem. 
Yeah, I mean, that's crazy because I'm like, I never, I mean, people just have this and don't mention it, you know. Exactly. I, I just, I, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've never had this conversation with a single patient, you know. That's just like, that. Ah, this is just normal and, you know, we don't need to talk about normal, you know. Right. Uh, it's interesting, but it's, it's, it's not abnormal, you know. Graphene synesthesia apparently is one of the most common. Um, what is that? That's the letters I have colors. All, you open up oh, a book sure. and write okay. printed letters. And somebody pointed out, how do you learn the alphabet? Uh, when you're a kid and you've got colored blocks and yeah. A's are Whatever red. Whatever color, yeah. Right. No, I, 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 would, I would put money on that one. Yeah, I would say that's probably right. I mean, almost certainly. Because this is all happening very early on in your, your brain development, which is like 12 months, six months, a year, two years, three years. This is set but long, early on, in, very early on. And it's just something that a lot of us kind of just prune off. And these, these days, people just sort of don't or have it for some reason and it's not that big of like, oh my God, what a disability, you know. Uh, it's just naturally, you know, it's just naturally how their brain works. And they just made a connection, which maybe was a little too specific, but it got reinforced and it got reinforced and it just became part of who they were. Well, what is that pruning process? That's a normal thing. So what, is there, yeah. is there is, it feels like there's a, there's a, there's a, a glitch or a fault in that pruning. No, I, you develop these filters throughout your, as you, as you get older and as you, as you develop. Possibly. And possibly, you say like, well, yeah. I don't have to remember the whole thing just to get the gist. And I think you start <laughs> kind of like um, concentrating on the pertinent parts. And it feels yeah, like, yeah. and it feels like uh, the synesthete is a person who has some sort of weird leakage around that filter. That's like, this isn't important, but it's coming along anyway. Remember where Melissa said her color happens? The best way that I can describe it is that if you're thinking of a memory, wherever that memory lies. I mean, my synesthesia lies where my memories lie. And it is why we reflexively look up into our peripheral visual area when we are trying to recall a memory because the center of our vision is distracted with the flood of visual stimulus happening in real time. So where does Melissa look to get a clearer view of the colors to make them resolve into something more concrete? More so maybe directed higher rather than lower. So there's more of a clarity in the center, I would say. The vast majority of the neurons are really in, it's something called the macula, which is the center of your retina. And it's basically what you're looking directly at. And we've already established that our peripheral vision is filled in by memory anyway. So maybe Melissa's visual memory plays the recall game a little deeper and brings along extra levels of association with it. And these associations literally color her peripheral vision. It's completely memory. Um, how it is exactly stored, the actual neuromechanics. I mean, uh, you know, that, that we'll be drilling down into for centuries. But yes, that is how it works. And even later in life, you're still forming a memory, you know. Uh, but these are probably really early in childhood. This is kind of basic. I mean, really basic sensation. Uh, and I mean, the fact that it's mostly vision, well, that's because we are predominantly visual. Um, just actually, you know, if you just add up and do the math, 90% of neurons, or as far as input to the brain, is vision. Uh, but smell, taste, touch, hearing, they're only around 20% of total neurons going into the brain. 
Since vision is such a critical part of how we form memories and associations, it makes sense that as our brains constantly reinforce these associations, vision would naturally be a huge part of this process. The brain is constantly reinforcing pathways to maintain memory and physical skills, which are really just memories of how to control your body, and motor skills are remembered and refined by repeating them, because they're memories too. So it is critical you keep doing it, or they may begin to disassociate, and you lose it. We constantly create patterns in life. You know, you identify everything through patterns, and so even more so you get embedded in these these trails that you've you've kind of walked over the same grass patterns over and over again and we have these you know same cognitive pathways that we constantly go down and this happens all the time you know it's like we have all the stuff we do automatically and it's amazing like walking down the street like nobody thinks about it it's very difficult to do this you know as people get older like i deal with this all day it's like dude you need to keep walking because if you stop you're going to fall you're going to hurt yourself and it's going to be bad you know so people need to keep walking it's just you, you need you must maintain these skills too these pathways the normal ones you know for like walking down the street not tripping when you trip on something, not falling, you know, and those reflexes slow down. I mean, just all these skills you learn, like now you get older and like, yeah, now it's like harder to do the same thing or now my knee hurts and now you kind of walk funny. Now my other knee hurts, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's a literal use it or lose it uh, ability. Oh, very, very much. Uh, this is like why we don't leave people in bed anymore. You know, it's like you had surgery this morning, sir. Get up, <laughs> you know, and we'll like make you walk around that day and kick you out the next day. And it's like, that's actually fantastic. You know, the old days of like getting in bed for a month, very rarely will you hear a doctor say that. Maybe whatever process the brain uses to reinforce memory has gone a little turbo driven in synesthetes. Say you were looking at a yellow wall the first time you heard a song and now that song is yellow, but you don't remember the wall. Or maybe you were remembering a date while leaning against the kitchen counter, now that date has a physical sensation associated with it. But memories aren't stored and strengthened equally. Some are more important than others, and the memories that get prioritized and reinforced, for better or for worse, are the ones that pack an emotional punch. The first kiss with that girl or guy you like, the emotional journey a particular song takes you on, or, for worse, when a traumatic event hardwires the brain into making hard but irrational associations. So like when people have a super traumatic like PTSD experience, you know, like the bomb goes off when you're in Iraq, you know, you, if you were driving past like some sage bushes, you drive back, drive by a sage bush, you're going to flip out. It's not the bomb. It's not. It's everything that you were taking in right before whatever happened happened. If the sky was blue and whenever it's that blue, you're going to have a problem, you know, or you might. It could trigger you. Uh, the smell of whatever plants were in the area, if somebody has one of those in their yard and brought it from Iraq or whatever, just if there's anything uniquely sense, taste, smell, hearing, if you hear a sound, like, you know, some stupid song was playing, you're like, I don't want to hear that song ever again, <laughs> you know? Like everything, everything coming in when that negative experience happened is going to be filed under heavily, like, fight or flight, get out of that situation. I don't know which one of these was the best warning sign, but they're all bad. And so it's going to have a hard time being around anything like any of those smells. So if there's gasoline fumes, every time you pull up to fill up your gas tank, you're going to have some, you know, skin tingling, you know, like your, your, your heart's going to start racing, you know? So just all these normal things that are just already always around, you've sort of now you have had a profound experience that labels those as 
very negative, you know, and they're going to trigger some visceral, negative, unconscious responses, you know. We get back to synesthetes again, like... And in a way, like, it, is that all that different than when I first learned, you know, my letters? A was blue, B was red, C was also red to me because I'm colorblind, and D was uh, black, you know? Like, I'm going to just, those are just what I linked to those letters because that's how I learned it. It is a truly disquieting fact about memory that we never remember the event itself. When you remember something, you are really just remembering the last time you remembered it, especially those memories that form outside of a high-stress event. They tend to distort every time we recall them. Memories are slippery. It's like if you remember someone and you're describing them in your head and then you meet them again and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, they that their hair was that dark. You know, you, you've kind of recolored it in your mind or something like that. Um, I feel like my experience with synesthesia, I think that I have it pegged down one way or another and then I'll listen to a song and I'll notice something that I hadn't noticed before and it'll change. Or I think that it's always fairly consistent, but I've never been able to compare a past experience with a current one because... If it's new to me, then I've forgotten the old one, so I don't know if it is consistent. You know, it's like, could have heard that song in 1995 and seen Orange and then listened again in, you know, 2006 and saw Blue. Have you ever gone back and painted the same song years later to see if it would change? I've thought about it Mm -hmm. just because my, I feel like my style has changed a lot and it's evolved and I'm curious what it would end up being like because I feel like the process is so much of the painting itself. And so if my, if my, um, my, my means to that process have changed, I'm curious how that, you know, ends up in, in the final look of the entire piece. So I, I'm curious about it, but I'm also afraid of it because these things have become more concrete. And so Little Wing, for example, is a song that my brother played on the guitar when I was little. And that, that is the image of, um, of what I've seen my entire life. And then I painted it. And now that's become an even more concrete image oh, of what it is. Okay. So it's like if you um, if you have a memory, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but if you have a memory and then you watch a home video of that memory from when you were five years old, it's like that home video takes over uh-huh. more so than what it, you know, than what you had thought of before with it. So, um I, it's, I haven't jumped into that before because it's kind of a, it's a funny thing to think about. <laughs> I don't know. So I, I, I don't know what it would end up being this time around. And now things are, like I said, becoming more concrete with what those songs are. It's like I've tied them up with a bow around them and that's what they exist as now. So we protect memories and it's not the kind of thing that you might maybe not want to mess with. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, I mean because those do become sacred especially with growing up listening to music and having that involved with my family. Those become that and then they become the painting and then that feels solid in itself and I and I like it as that, I guess. I don't know. I I don't know how I feel about that yet. <laughs> Monet and Renoir, 
would return to the same subject over and over throughout the day to see how light changed their perception. Many painters, famously Rembrandt, produced self-portraits through their lifetimes to chronicle their changing self-perception. But in these examples, the painters were interpreting the visual stimulus before their eyes and freezing that moment in time. But what if Melissa's subject is really memory itself? Are her paintings internal landscapes of her unconsciously associated recollections and emotions? Melissa used to listen to her brother practice playing Jimi Hendrix's Little Wing. And by painting that song again, maybe she's afraid of changing that memory. Perhaps. I don't know. I'm not really a doctor. But I do believe synesthetes have the privilege of being able to peek under the brain's hood and glimpse how the brain makes a mind As the brain does its unconscious, billion times a second operation of retrieving associated memories to construct our realities, it recalls a bit more than is really needed. A sort of overzealous data collection of the brain. It's not doing anything extra, but just failing to screen out the less pertinent stuff. Like... You open an old drawer looking for old tax returns, but find the pocket knife your dad gave you. And now you're sitting at your desk thinking about the day he gave it to you when you were both so much younger at the county fair where Credence Clearwater Revival's Green River played from the knife vendor's booth. And the poplar tree overhead was at least... 200 shades of green. Trying to explain it is fun, but again, uh, not really possible. (laughs) But what strikes me is that people want to see their experience reinterpreted or distorted because it gives us a new experience of that thing. This is the effect that psychedelics give you, which is the opportunity to see something again for the first time. Is that what it does to you? What does it do to you? That's what you see, man. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> That's you, not what I see, man. You mean, you mean you don't just blank out and see just absolute gray scale of nothing? <laughs> but no, seriously, you think that's the reason for psychedelics or part of the reason? It's to re- re-experience something again? Absolutely. Oh, I don't. I don't feel that way at all. What do you think they're for? To be released from the everyday expected and to experience something other. But that's the same thing, is it? Yeah. Right. Oh, to go back to the child mind. Well, we're right because the everyday experience is the consensus experience. Mm -hmm. That's the one where you have decided over your lifetime. This is this. I got it. You know, no need to to look at this a second time. Right. I know what this is. And psychedelics are a disarrangement of those connections. Mm -hmm. And now you end up staring at a Coleman lantern for six hours because (laughs) I've never seen that before. (laughs) You're like, well, you have, Mm -hmm. but not like this. (laughs) Right. Well, the, what psychedelics do, we actually, this is a very recent discovery is that we always thought that psychedelics 
both LSD and mushrooms make your brain go wacky mm. and overprocess. That's not what they actually do. What they do is they deaden a very, very, very primordial part of your middle brain that is the conductor, which says mm-hmm. this part of the brain needs to talk to this part of the brain to do this particular thing. What it does is it deadens, it just deadens that little part of that brain. So you suddenly get crosstalk like you do when you you're a baby before that part of the brain has actually formed. So you literally, when you do psychedelics, you're getting baby brain. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that when you are hanging out with an infant Mm -hmm. the whole time, they're like, is this, this, what is this thing before me? It is my hand. Holy crap. Babies are literally tripping or our interpretation of tripping is actually more rooted to who we actually are. You can't go through your day reprocessing every single little thing. You wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> right. You, know? you wouldn't be able to hunt. You would Exactly. <laughs> you would not be able to hunt. You would be able to do anything. Right. Uh, so we rely on patterns. We rely on assumptions to get through the day. Mm-hmm. And But babies are born without that stuff. You have to... The part that an infant goes through is the process of, of funneling down of learning to screen reality out. right and filter right. out you know is this important right now right is this essential i know what this is got it yeah got don't it. worry about it i know what yeah, this is exactly. now move on move on move on right which is why they say when you think you're seeing a tree you're not actually seeing a tree mm-hmm. right until you're maybe tripping Mm-hmm. <laughs> or in deep, deep, deep state of meditation until you can actually see the tree. Right. Mm-hmm. Th- th- to see it again for the first time. Yeah. The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode by Brandon Edgens, including the terrible version of Big Stick by the Minutemen, you are hearing now, which is performed by myself and the WellPod's own Nigel McFerris Steele Esquire, our webmaster on drums. Thank you to Dr. Robert Chance Algar for indulging my pseudoscientific rambling and recommending me for a Nobel Prize so I can finally attend the banquet in Stockholm. I look forward to eating the lightly baked Arctic char with crayfish broth, dill seed infused onion, lightly smoked trout roe, crispy potato, and watercress foam. It was on the menu in 2018. Maybe they'll have it again. Thanks to all those who participated in our creative challenge. It was really cool to see everyone's interpretations of the songs. And of course, a big thank you to our guest, Melissa McCracken, for attempting to paint with words her reaction to the original Minutemen song you can hear by going to the show notes section of thewellpod.com where you can subscribe, retweet, and review. And remember to check out Melissa's work at melissasmccracken.com and maybe commission her to paint your favorite song. Thanks for listening and have a great week. So that one is, it was immediately like a canary yellow kind of tone and like a, a downward slope. The the bulk of it was like in a downward slope. Um, and also his voice is so 
So very literally wobbly. And he's he's kind of delayed on the tempo of it. The, I guess the, the visual mathematics of it all were dis, more disconnected looking. There, there was a, a round peg in a square hole, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. And then the guitar that came in was interestingly green and um, like a lighter purple, like more of like a fuchsia kind of color, but but bubbly and roundy. So that entire song in itself had elements that didn't, for me, feel that cohesive. Like they, it was all just kind of this collage of um, things together. It was just like water and oil. Like it just wouldn't quite mingle uh, very well. I feel like a lot of acoustic guitar is um, more of this like canary yellow too, but it's 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 brighter. And I think that everyone can kind of identify with that association of of higher notes being lighter and brighter. And maybe the trebly thing is more of just a yellowy tone. <laughs> maybe I know more about music subconsciously than I do in my active brain. Interesting. Who is that? The Minuteman. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's a funny song. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it links to creativity. I'm sure there's just as many guys working at 7-Eleven with it, you know? Um, I, I, I don't know if anyone just, has it, but like, I mean, artists are... They're going to notice, they're going to realize it, and right. they're going to talk about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know. That's where the conversation but, started with Melissa, was that like she didn't know until she was 16, 17. And it was because she was talking to her friend and said, I'm looking for a song, I'm looking for a, um, a ringtone that goes with my phone because, uh, and my phone is blue <laughs> and this ringtone is orange. Don't you get it? And that was how she found out that she had it because That's the other funny. person was like, yeah, totally. what do you mean the ringtone is orange? He said, she's like, well, it's orange. What is your uh, problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that's totally, you know, in Jimi Hendrix, why must there be all these colors without names, without sounds? Um, Jimmy, um, colors and what? <laughs> without names, without sounds. That's where he crossed the line. You know, like all these colors, there's tons without names. Nobody else is seeing the sounds, man. <laughs> um, and I love that. I was like, and he, no one probably told him, they're just like, just go with it, just go with it, you know. <laughs>